Tonight, I'm going to be very clear with you. I want to speak tonight about um, a message we would call the mountain men. I'm going to open up with an intro with a little video. They are the men who hear the call of the wild the loudest. They are the mountain men. They risk everything as they venture into an unknown and savage wilderness. They come for a life of high adventure and wanderlust. Although their time of prominence lasts little more than a generation, their impact is enormous. They help tame the wilderness by blazing trails across the landscape, and in the process, they open the Wild West to the entire world. One of these guys, this is a, this is a documentary I just so happened to be watching uh, when Pastor Eric asked if I would preach tonight. And I said, praise God, well, then that's what you'll get, whatever's inspiring me for the moment. I've often had... Um, I've often had opportunities to pray, get a burden to preach a word, um, and now um, I've been thrown a different bone. So. <laughs> but praise God, some wise man has taught me that the word is more than enough. Amen. So this documentary was about the mountain men. Now, the mountain men I knew nothing about and just so happened to come across this documentary. Uh, these were the men who scouted out uh, the United States or the Americas, um, when, uh, when it had not had been hatched out previously. They sent these men in basically to the unknown, to, to a nowhere land. They didn't know what was happening in the land, whether it was danger, whether it was blessings. They didn't know what was happening. So as they, they look at, they're standing before these great mountains in the documentary, and they don't know what's on the other side. What was beautiful in here is I learned that they, uh, how, how did they know which way to go, what way to go, what directed them? You know, it's funny, their road map and their directions was the streams and the rivers. So when they were going into the unknown, into places they had never been before, they simply followed the river. So as you can imagine, being laced with the word and, uh, and having the, uh, the word washing my mind as I'm watching a documentary, I'm putting all these things together, and Jesus is trying to speak to me. The Holy Spirit's speaking. I'll say amen. So, so basically, when I saw the mountain men, I said, well, that's us. These are men with great adventure on their mind, with the great unknown on their mind. They see, they see the world ahead of them. They see danger. They see uh, beauty. But there's something in them that drives them to want to go head over heels into that no matter the cost. This is where we're at in this church. Amen. This is where we're at in this church. Sometimes it's hard to see uh, the mountain when you're standing right up against it. You need to back up and look. And so you can imagine when I'm watching this documentary, I'm just thinking, wow, this is really speaking. You know, some people might watch cartoons. They might watch something else. But I'm watching this, and the Lord's speaking to me through that. So I don't know what to say about that. Oddly enough, I thought about Peru, which was the last 
mission trip uh, that I'd been on. And what I knew about Peru was something I didn't know before I went. And that's what I was made of. And this really spoke to me because when I was uh, thinking about this, I thought, wow, you know, many men think about doing things like we did in Peru. Not too many do it. They let fear grip them. They let um, the unknown grip them. There's all kinds of things that stop you from doing what God would have you to do. I call it uh, uh, paralysis by analysis. And so you're just stone cold because you think you, you try to legitimize everything and therefore you never go to where God called you to. Well, in Peru, we seen a vast array of mountains. When we came in on the plane, I never seen, I, you know, you see mountains go up, but from a plane, you see them go down, 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 never stop going down. They come back up and you say, we're going to walk on that. You know what? The glory of God is upon the deep waters and the glory of God are inside of those places where most men will not go. They won't go. And you know what? I thought I thought very clearly. The Holy Spirit spoke to me as I'm watching this documentary and I'm looking into the word. And it said there is many uh, there's there's never been a man uh, that has made a mountain. But there's been plenty mountains that have made men. There have been plenty mountains that made men. There's, there's been a, plenty of mountains that made a man out of me. And why did I say that? Was I a man before I stepped in? Yes, but I didn't know what type of man I was until I came out. There was many things that were instilled in me that were not there before. You know what it was? It wasn't that it was anything about me. It was about he who was in me. And see, if you never go through those vast those adventures, those scary places, those risky places, you'll never know who it is that's in you. You'll never know who it is that's in you. And that's why he sends you to these places. In Revelations, it says that the, the, the mountains are going to be laid waste at some point. Well, why aren't they laid waste now? Why did he put them there? You know, mountains are beautiful when you're looking at them. You know, and what's their purpose? I would say mountains and men are codependent relationships. I would say that they depend upon each other. We give the mountains their purpose, and the mountains make men out of us. Now, I'm talking about mountains, but you know that I'm really talking about obstacles in your life. Not, they're not obstacles. They're actually opportunities, and only you can know that by the Holy Ghost. You can only know that those mountains are not in your way. They are giving you direction. They're pointing the way. How many of us try to spend all our life going around the mountain on good and well, we'll never make it around? When God simply said, if you'll go, you'll know that I am in you. If you go, you'll know the strength that I put in you. But, it, but you won't. You just simply run around and around and around the mountain. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus uh, said, Jesus replied, <coughs> Because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. <laughs> now, some of you in this scripture heard one thing, and some of you heard another. Some heard, I have so little faith. And the others heard, nothing will be impossible for you. It's two extremes, right? 
It depends on where you're at in your walk and if you've took the leap or not. I heard uh, a story about Smith Wigglesworth. And he came up and he prayed to a man with no feet, told him to go and buy shoes. And the man said, what do you mean I have no feet? He said, no, go to the shoe store and buy shoes. And so the man said, you're crazy, whatever, but I'm going to buy shoes. So he went to buy shoes, and he went into the shoe store, and the man said, what do you need, sir? I need shoes. Okay, sir, you have no feet. Yep, preacher said, I'm gonna have, I need shoes. Okay, what size? Size eight. <laughs> At that, the shoe man, uh, the sh- shoe salesman got down to put the shoes on his feet, and the foot grew into place. He did the same thing for the next one, and it grew into place. Now, let me ask you something. Honestly, when I tell you that story, is there any undoubt in you? (laughs) Yeah, there is. Probably in the most faithful in here that we would look from the outside, from the outside perspective, probably the most what we would call faithful in here has the that very. Uh, war going inside of them. That very thing that says, I want to believe it, God, but, yeah, you got to go through the mountains, friend. What we don't know is how many times that Mr. Wigglesworth failed. We don't know how many times that that didn't work. Right? But he never stopped trying. You know why this, that man we speak about was a man that seen many mountains. He seen many mountains, and it made a man out of him. It made a man of God out of him. So where at are you in your walk? When we read this scripture, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Is there any scripture At that point, was Jesus just given something new, a greater revelation, a greater understanding? From the time of Jesus till now, has there been any account of a man moving an actual mountain? Okay, so he said we haven't arrived and we got a long long way to go, right? Okay, well, what do we do? Do we continue to press on? Do we get real charismatic and start moving mountains? The last thing we need is a bunch of charismatics running around and moving mountains. Right? But the number one thing we need is to see those mountains boulder by boulder by boulder fall to pieces in front of us. Through our faithfulness and our trust in God, we will see each boulder, one piece at a time, mountains fall. Now, we've seen that over and over again. We've seen that time and time and time again. So I ask you, what is your mountain and is it crumbling before you? Read Proverbs 20 with me, if you would. Proverbs 20, verse 21. It says, an inheritance quickly gained at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. Don't you know that our Father knows what we need when we need it? And if we, if we could move every mountain, how many mountains would we move? We would fast forward and we would lay level ground 
right before us so that we could run to receive our inheritance. But God put those mountains in front of us for a reason. It's to make men out of us and to make women out of us. Look at verse 6. Many a man, 20 verse 6, many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. We always go, yep, that's right. Must be talking about that person over there. (laughs) Right? The other person. But look at verse 9. Who can say I have kept my heart pure and I am clean without sin? Oh, man. Now the responsibility falls back on us. In verse 5, it says, The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. This is actually in our mezuzah. This is our family call. As we see things in others and we want to die so that they can live them out. You know why? Because that's what was first done for us. That's what was done for us. If somebody seen potential in us, lay down their life so that we could reach those potentials and beyond. But look here, if you apply that scripture to yourself and not to some other person, doesn't it really give you an understanding of who you are? Doesn't it really give you an understanding, a desire to want a mountain put in front of you instead of level ground? Wouldn't you prefer that God would give you something difficult to do so that he can make something out of you so that you don't remain the same today and tomorrow, but that you're better than you were yesterday? Created in the image of God each and every single day. Yeah. Then you start to look at the mountains differently. All of a sudden, they're not obstacles. They're opportunities. You start to ask God to bring me to the risky places. Put me in odd positions. Bring me the difficult. This is what I was born again for. Why? Verse 24. A man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? (laughs) I'm living that right now, I promise. That's experience. I told my wife the other day, I'm definitely done with trying to figure things out. I'm simply going to ride the wave of the Holy Ghost and going to find the joy in it. Because every time I figure something out, God crushes it. in the, in the piece of the documentary that I showed you in the beginning, this was actually, it was feeding my heart because I, I know that is the desire, the desire in me is to look into the great unknown and, and not care. Whatever's there, I want, to, I want to achieve or receive or whatever you, however you want to put it in your Christian terminology. I want to know the glory of God, no matter what it takes. If I see a large mountain in front of me, and it's uh, majestic and great, or there's something burning inside of me that says, what is over on the other side? There may be beasts. There may be great harm. There may be things that devour you in that place. But will you go? You see, this is, this, when I was talking about us as a church, as a body, being in this position once again, This is what's happening as a whole. You can feel the tension. You can feel the holding of the breath. Because you know now God's called us. He's shown us another mountain. 
He's shown us another vast array. We just thought we were on the brink of that vast array before. It's like crossing over a mountain and another mountain, and then you go, wow, another one? A bigger one? Wow. You think more of me, God, than I think of myself. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, enemies. There's enemies in those, in those great unknown areas in vast arrays of mountains and things that you can't see. They're going to cause you disharm. They're going to cause you discomfort. Yes. But that's what it is to count the cost and to keep moving forward. It's a greater sacrifice. It's a greater glory to God when you know what you're about to tackle and you still go. But you know what else is there? Beautiful and grand arrays of God's creation, his glory. And that's what you're after. That's what you're after. Freedom. Those men, you should hear their, their testimonies. What they really talked about, what, what made everything else pale in comparison was the freedom that they gained when they realized they were in a brand new land. They were in a brand new place that took them uh, that killed most of them and the ones who made it. The ones who made it talked about the freedom, the beauty, and the, and the vast exploration of the, of the land, the place that they landed that said that everything else paled in comparison. Nothing pales in com comparison to the glory when you go to the one that called you. When he calls out, you know what he does? He calls out on the other end of that, of that um, mountain range. He doesn't stand in the front of it and call you. He calls on the other end, and he says, come, and it echoes, and echoes, and echoes, and echoes. And you know it's an echo, and you know it's far away, but he's worthy. That's the mountains. In Psalm 68, verse 15, Psalm 68, verse 15. Now, this scripture really hung me up for a minute. The mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. To me, that's polar opposite. Some, some may see it as the same. For me, it's polar opposite. Verse 16. Why gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? You know what this actually made me think of? Verse 15 was the other day when uh, Elder Charlie's um, kind words to me uh, about being rugged, about being rough, right? But in some, the mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. There's no doubt I'm a rugged mountain. There's no doubt about it. But somebody sees it as majestic. <laughs> uh, you know why? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9, attests to this. One of my favorite scriptures. What does the worker gain from his toil? Keep going. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Amen. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Stay there. See, that's the problem. 
That's, that causes a conflict in us. He's put eternity in our hearts, and he's made everything beautiful in its time. But see, you have to go into those mountains. You have to, you have to take on that mountain range for him to make you beautiful. And what's the problem? He said eternity in our hearts. You know what that is? It's when you see that vast array of mountains, that difficult thing, and there's something in you that says, I have to go. Doesn't matter the cost. Doesn't matter because I have to go. That's eternity in the hearts. It's saying there's glory out there. There's glory out there. There's glory out there. And it doesn't matter if it costs me my life. In Hebrews 11, I found, go figure, seven <laughs> mountain men. <laughs> Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancient mountain men <laughs> were commended for. <laughs> verse, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Verse 5, by Enoch, uh, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I'm going to be honest, I've struggled with this one a long time because uh, and it's the very first scripture that I encountered, engaged with. And I got the first half, but I'm still struggling with the second half. The first half is you must come to God and know that he is. Let me read that again. Where'd it go? Six, thank you. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. That's what, that was the beginning of my walk. Nobody told me about Jesus. But the second part, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I struggle with the fact that he wants to bless us and that everything is difficult all the time. You, you probably can see that as I preach. You know what I mean? Is uh, sometimes it comes off hard, and it's it's harder for me to go the other route because I have I have engaged these mountains. I have took them on and said, "Let's uh, I want I want everything that they can give me because I want the full glory of God. I want the maximum glory out of this flesh, out of this body. I want it all." Because he's worthy. That's a burden that's laid on my shoulders. That's just me bearing my heart. Is that okay? Yeah. Seven mountain men in Hebrews 11. The first one, verse 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. 17 is where I want to take you. Abraham, by faith, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Where did he do that at? 
on a mountain. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his only son. Mm. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death, from the from the dead. Jesus. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure of Egypt. Wow. Verse 30. By faith, Jericho fell at whose hands? Joshua. After the people had marched around them for seven days. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? I did not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal? Yeah. Yeah, we often lose that, don't we? Isn't the gain a better life? It's the gain of better resurrection. For this is the mountain range. This is the difficult time. We find joy within it. God is trying to make something out of us now. So that was five. Let me list those again. Abraham risked his son. And why did he do that? What happened to him on the mountaintop? He, he found God. Amen. He found an attribute or character of God. He called him El Shaddai. Because he embraced that mountain. On the mountaintop, he found El Shaddai. Shaddai was more than enough. Moses gave away his royalty. He gave away everything. He took on a burden of the nation that was in slavery, and he met Yahweh, the covenant God. Joshua risked his life and the lives of his brothers. It's one thing to risk your life. Try bringing some others to another country are in some place and put their lives in danger as well. And what, it ha- what happened to him? He obtained the promise. He obtained mountains that were stolen from the enemy. He realized that God was El Kano. How do you say that? K-A-N-N-O. He is a jealous protector. He took city after city after city, and he could look back and go, my God fights for me. My God protects me. I went through this, 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 and this, and I'm still standing. David committed, committed his life to establish a house for the one he came to know as El Olam, the everlasting God. 
Elijah daily laid his reputation on the line for others to realize that God was El Elyon, the supreme and the only strength, and he proved it time and time again. Jesus paid it all for us to show us that God was Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to hold on to the seventh one for now because we can come back to it. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, I wanted to show you something. I found a mountaintop failure and I found a mountaintop victory. And I figured if we're going to the high places, we need to know what to do when we get there. I figured if some of us are there on the mountaintops because some of us are in the valleys and some of us are in the valleys, that's our life. Up and down, up and down, but the mountains always ain't too, ain't no mountain high enough. Come on, Curtis. Uh, forgive me, my, that's where my mind went. <laughs> Look at this, First Kings chapter 1. First Kings chapter 1, when King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. The, the setting here is Mount Zion, a place that David spent his life to establish. So we have another mountaintop meeting and scenario. David had fought. He fought all his life to, to establish a stronghold there only to build a house of God that his presence could dwell in that place. That was that, that's what that man's life was for. It was dedicated, nothing else, to establish one place that somebody could say, if I go there, I can meet God. So the setting is Mount Zion. We got an older David. He's about to go the way of his ancestors. He's on his deathbed, and he's got two sons. In verse 5, we meet the first one, Adonijah, whose mother was a hag. <laughs> but put himself forward and said, I will be king. I will exalt myself. So he got chariots and horses, go figure, with 50 men to run ahead of him. He was always very, what is this? Why you do, why do you behave as you do? Oh, I got you. I skipped it. His father had never in, interfered with him by asking, why do you behave the way you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. They just kind of threw that in there. Adonijah conferred with Joab, one of David's mighty men, and with Abathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. Ah, but Zadok and the priest, Beniah, another mighty man, Nathan the prophet, uh, Shemaiah and Rai, <laughs> and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fatted calves at the stone of Zahela near Eg, uh, in Rogel. Boy, I need Jen Stevens up here speaking. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah who were royal officials. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet 
Arbaniah, uh, or the special guard, or even his brother, Solomon. I think he was up to something. Mm. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, (laughs) has become king uh, without our Lord knowing it? What what was Adonijah doing here? He was trying to slip in and pull a slick one. Adonijah exalts himself without his father's approval. We ever seen that before? <laughs> we ever done that before? Amen. He invites all the leadership except the ones that wouldn't support him. He invited all the leadership and the ones that would support his self-exaltation. He makes worthless sacrifices. And why do I say they're worthless? Because it wasn't by his father's approval. He was spinning his wheels. He was... He was working in vain. He surrounded himself with men who represented strength and who represented plenty because that's what their names meant, father of plenty. It's not that he he didn't have promises. He was a son of the king. It's that he didn't have his brother's promises. He could have had royalty. He could have lived in the house and served beside his brother all the days. But what happened? You see, Adonijah's failure didn't come at a low place in life. It came at a high place. It came at the high place, a very high place in his life. So we always say, be careful, you know, hang around the valley dwellers. And uh, and when you're in the valley in the low spots, it's when the enemy wants to take you out. But what about the high places? What about when you've got to a place where God wants to uh, uh, bring you somewhere and then you forget about your God who got you there? You see, it's the high places that makes a further fall. But old Solomon, (laughs) it's debatable whether he finished well or not. We're going to talk about his beginning. Am I boring you? No. Okay. In uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8, then King David called to Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed low with her face to the ground and kneeling before the king said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, another mighty man. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servant with you and set Solomon, my son, on on my mule and take him down to Gahan. There, have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, 
Long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. There's so much symbology in that. It's crazy, but I'm going to stick to the point. Solomon did not fight for his position. He didn't even ask for it. Solomon didn't ask for his position, didn't even ask for it. He simply was obedient because obedience is better than sacrifice. He humbled himself and let God. Somebody in here told me one time, let go and let God. That stuck with me forever. Sometimes we just got to let go and let God. That speaks to us who have uh, anxiety troubles, who try to run too fast, who try to get ahead of ourselves and put the cart before the horse. His father surrounded him. Solomon didn't surround himself with men. His father surrounded him with the proper men. He surrounded himself with men that would point out what Solomon was to do. Benaiah, who meant Yahweh builds up. It's funny the contrast here because Adonijah tried to build up himself. But when the father surrounds you with men to point out the fact that God is doing this thing, they call out in you what you may already be doing. There's a right order to that. Zadok, which represented the word. Nathan, which represented prophecy. And the horn of oil was all present in this scenario. And the horn of oil obviously represented the anointing of God. You see, when God calls out a man to rule and to reign for him, you'll be able to see it. There'll be things going on around him. He's already naturally doing what he's, uh, what he would uh, supposed to do, his calling, his function, things like that. And he didn't have to do it. He simply had to be obedient through the way. So what is this? To me, the contrast, the compare and contrast between the two, the, the mountaintop scenarios that I'm talking about, one's a failure, one's a victory. When you find yourself on the mountaintops, and you will, because I know you in here and everybody is uh, uh, striving to be obedient. You're going to find yourself on those places where God's leading you because you love him and he's leading you. He's your shepherd and you hear his voice. But what do you do when you get to that place? Because it's always forward in the kingdom, right? All right. These are these are not things. So we saw on the mountaintop failure with Adonijah. We saw his sin. But what else did we see? He was blinded. It blinded him to what God had called him to be. And that's the sad part. Not the sad part that he, that he sinned and it fell to his destruction, but even sadder than that, he missed the call of God. He missed the call of God on his life because he was running after somewhat, something else. He was coveting a, his brother's call or his sister's call. You, you feel me? I'm being really real with you right now. Because that's, that's the heart is you don't want to miss the call because you're caught up on something else. But in the mountaintop victory, this is a prescription that God gives you to direct you and to show you whether you're on the right path or not. 
These are signs because you are to discover your function. Right? Not to see it and go get it. You discover it. When you're walking out, that's the hardest thing I've had to learn. To go, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be this. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to be that. And I run this way. And then I find myself spent and exhausted because I was supposed to be running this way. But through it all, God's faithful. And then he slows me down and says, no, you're supposed to be this. And how did I know that? Because God surrounded me. He surrounded me with the word who kept me in line. He surrounded me with prophecy that lined up with the word. He surrounded me with men and with women that would call out and see what I was already doing naturally. Because isn't that it? We're supposed to end up having a new nature, right? And we naturally find ourselves doing something. And if we consistently find our, naturally find ourselves doing something, that might be the new nature in us that's doing it, not the old one. And the anointing to carry out the task. These are the earmarks of your calling. These are things that you can look to. And when you're on the mountaintops, you don't fall. You keep on going. Amen. I want to get to the seventh. Man, but when I thought about mountaintop experiences and I thought in the Bible, where are they? What is the most prominent mountaintop experiences? I thought of Mount Zion and what happened there, and I thought of the Mount of Transfiguration. Turn with me there if you would. That's Matthew chapter 17. And what's funny is when I looked at this, would you know that I found the same characteristics present at the Mount of Transfiguration that I did on Mount Zion? Watch this. Chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, mighty men of God, the brother, uh, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured or changed before them. His face, sh does that say shone? Is that in English? His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. You know the seventh on the mountain is? It's you. The seventh on the mountain is you. It's always you. The word's always talking about you. It is always talking about you. We are on the mountain. The scripture declares we are Mount Zion. However you want to say it, this is our call. We have heard the great call echoing through 
and throughout the canyons and the great mountain tops, and they will make men out of you. That is the call. And what do we say at first? That there's not a man that ever made a mountain, but the mountains make the man. This is what we're called to, to take on the difficult, to go into the, uh, to the valleys and to the vast unknown so that we can see the glory of God. You can sit and wait at the bottom of the mountain all your life. You can run around it. You are spinning your wheels. You are spinning your wheels. You're not going to fulfill the call of God on your life. But if you go, oh, if you go, then you'll know he who is in you. That's, that's the call of God. Am I being clear tonight? Yes. I know that sometimes I can uh, fail in deliveries, but I want you to know that the mountain <coughs> makes the man. Look, as, look at what is present in here. You have the father present on the, mount, the mountain. We have a mountain. We have the father present. We have the anointed son of promise. We have Moses, the priest. We have Elijah, the prophet. We have Peter, James, and John, mighty men. The scripture bears witness to itself. It bears witness to itself that we are to be in the high places, declare it holy ground, fight to get there, fight to keep it, and fight for the glory of God. I'm going to close out with this scripture. Back up, Matthew 17. Verse 14, here's what I love about this. They're coming off the mountain. I want you to do something for me. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Peter or of John or James. And you're on the mountain. And Jesus is transformed into his full glory. And you're looking at that for the first time. How pumped would you be? <laughs> How pumped would you be? You'd be looking for a man with no feet, wouldn't you? You'd be looking for the biggest mountain. You're coming down the mountain, and the first thing that happens, my heading says the healing of the boy with a demon. And watch this. Coming down the mountain, not too far after the mountain. They came down. They came to the crowd. A man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often fell, falls into the fire and with water. I brought him to the disciples, but they could not heal him. Ah. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive him out? We just come off the mountain with you. We just seen you in your full glory. You invited us there. We're mighty men. We've been on the mountain with you. He replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Don't you think they were remembering him out the mountain before? Yeah. Don't you think that 
do you have to go through these mountains to get a mustard seed of faith? You know what the mountains are for? They're to make straight the way of the Lord. They're to correct a unbelieving and perverse generation. Help us, God, in our unbelief. You know, humility is learning to know who we are, who God is, learning to love the difference. Learning to love the difference. Learning to love the difference in between us and seeing that God's on the other side of that mountain range and we desire no matter what to get to him, that he gets the full glory out of us. Amen? Amen. Stand with me if you could.